Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at HistoryGuyGuild.Locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about two Cold War programs meant to protect the United States and North America from the threat of nuclear war. First, the History Guy tells the story of the distant early warning line and its predecessors, radar systems meant to track possible attacks over the Arctic Circle. Then the History Guy tells the story of the Texas Towers and the tragedy that befell the men on Texas Tower 4. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Large public works from ancient pyramids to modern superhighways have transformed the world. And while these projects are amazing in their own right, they often have unintended consequences that go far beyond the original scope of the project. And that is particularly true of one massive public works project that occurred in the middle of the 1950s. Between February of 1954 and July of 1957, the United States and Canadian governments cooperated on one of the largest and most ambitious construction projects in the history of the world. And in doing so, they transformed Canada. They changed its culture, its economy, its governance, its very geography. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The realities of the Second World War first brought the U.S. and Canada to the realization that we had much to gain by mutual military cooperation. The early risk that England may fall to Nazi Germany suggested that Canada, with its vast natural resources and a relatively small population, might be the next target. Officials in both the United States and Canada recognized the value of joint cooperation in defense of the continent. In August of 1940, Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King and U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Ogdensburg Agreement, which created the Permanent Joint Board on Defense. The board includes both Canadian and American military and civilian representatives, with the task of providing policy-level consultation on bilateral defense matters. The existence of the Joint Board positioned the countries for further cooperation during the tense times of the Cold War, as both nations became concerned about continental defense, or the protection of North America from the threat of attack by long-range bombers. The obvious idea was to build a line of radar installations that could detect incoming bombers early, giving time to direct fighter aircraft to attack the bomber formations. But both nations were also facing a public demand to reduce defense spending, and increasing demands to meet their NATO commitments in Europe. And radar technology at the time had its limitations. It was expensive. It was relatively short-ranged. It required large support teams. And if you put your radar installations farther out on the frontier where they could detect Soviet bombers earlier, that magnified the difficulty of building and maintaining such installations. Plans for a joint early warning system started as early as 1946. But it took the first Soviet test of a nuclear bomb, called First Lightning, August 29th of 1949, to finally compel the U.S. Congress to appropriate funds. The first continental radar defense line was called the Pine Tree Line. The joint project was constructed around the 50th parallel, under the philosophy that a Soviet attack would likely center on major population and industrial centers. But even as it became operational in 1954, it was, in many ways, outdated. 
The line used classic pulsed mode radar, which was relatively short-ranged, imprecise, and often unable to detect objects flying close to the ground. Additionally, the location of the stations close to the population centers they were protecting provided only limited warning time. While parts of the Pine Tree Line remained in service into the 1990s, it was clear from the beginning that the Pine Tree Line would provide insufficient protection from bomber attack. In 1956, construction began on a new line of radar stations across the 55th parallel. This line used newer forward scattered bi-static radar technology with greater range and automation. The so-called Mid-Canada Line was seen more as a supplement for the Pine Tree Line than a replacement, and unlike the Pine Tree Line, was wholly funded by Canada and staffed by Royal Canadian Air Force personnel. But despite the new technology, the Mid-Canada Line also had technological limitations. While the bi-static radar technology meant that the radar could detect to higher altitudes and longer ranges, it was not able to determine exact locations and as such was more of a tripwire than a useful tool for vectoring fighter interceptors. Just as problematic, the radar signal could be overwhelmed by flocks of birds during migration season. Like the Pine Tree Line, the Mid-Canada Line was largely outdated before it was operational, and another, more capable line was being planned, even as the Mid-Canada Line was being constructed. The final line was, by far, the most capable, utilizing newer technologies and placed much farther towards the North Pole, as the Pole was the shortest route that Soviet bombers would take if attacking into North America. While improved radar technology and automation made it more practical to staff a line so far north, the distant early warning line, or dew line, was nonetheless an ambitious feat of engineering. It planned to take some of the world's most advanced technologies and place them into some of the world's most remote and inhospitable environments. The dew line would be placed along the 69th parallel, two to three hundred kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. The dew line stations included two types of radar. The long-range detection system had two back-to-back -back antennas, one with a pencil beam for long-range precision detection, and one with a square beam for general search with a wider beam. Those antennas would be flanked by shorter-ranged bi-static gap filler radars, which would detect any aircraft trying to sneak between the long-range radar. That system was similar to the one that was used on the Mid-Canada line, but used the Doppler effect, which allowed it to filter out slow-moving objects and avoid the issues with migrating birds blocking the radar. The two systems provided a more comprehensive barrier than the previous two echelons, and location at the edge of the Arctic offered far greater warning of an attack, allowing better time to plan and ready both defensive interceptors and strategic bombers that would allow counterattack. The stations were connected to each other and command and control through a communication network called the White Alice Communication System, or WACS, that required large parabolic antennas. Because of the remoteness and inaccessibility of the locations, the stations needed to be designed for both self-sufficiency and for mutual support. Designs had to include extensive port storage facilities, repair and maintenance capabilities, and multiple system redundancies. Merely doing the survey to identify the 63 sites that stretched from Alaska to the Baffin Islands was an epic feat. There was no infrastructure in the north of Canada. Survey teams operated in primitive conditions and extreme weather to try to identify locations that you could access via water for construction and resupply, that had room for airfields, that had ground where you could build an installation, or if not, enough gravel nearby that they could literally build ground to build an installation, and of course, most importantly, that had an unobstructed radar view to the north. The construction process was massive, involving some 25,000 people. 3,000 members of the U.S. Army Transportation Corps managed the sea lift during the brief summers. Materials were airlifted by massive U.S. Air Force ski-equipped Lockheed LC-130s, as well as Douglas C-124 Globemasters and Fairchild C-119 flying boxcars. The rugged conditions for construction and supply created a market for short takeoff and landing bush planes, like the de Havilland Canada DHC-2 Beaver. Whatever could not be moved by plane or boat would be dragged in cat trains of sledges dragged by snowcats and bulldozers. 
In all, some 460,000 tons of material was moved from the U.S. and southern Canada to the Arctic in some of the most difficult-to-reach locations and brutal weather conditions on Earth. Subcontractors then used thousands of workers to transform those into bases, building housing, airstrips, aircraft hangars, outdoor and covered antennas, and antenna towers, often in the dark and in sub-zero temperatures. Despite the challenges, the line was constructed quickly, and in 1957, two years and eight months after the decision to build was made, the line was operational. The 63 stations came in different sizes. Some were unmanned and only required maintenance during the brief summers. Others had crews of just three people. Larger stations might have as many as 100 personnel. All those people so far up north that in the dead of winter, the temperature outside might be as low as minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit. The construction and operation in what was previously an almost completely undeveloped part of the world did offer some economic and scientific benefits. Small bush plane operations that got supply contracts got so much business that they grew to major airlines, with both Canadian Airlines and Eastern Provincial Airlines deriving from such operations. Likewise, Canadian electronic contractors with supply contracts gained substantial business and grew as an industry. The Dulan provided opportunities for research and scientific development. The experience of the construction provided valuable insights into building and maintaining materials and bases in remote locations and extreme environments. And the stations offered an unprecedented opportunity for the study of Arctic weather and oceanographic study. But the Dulan also offered unique challenges in environmental impacts. Building and maintaining the stations required roads that cut through the permafrost, damaging watersheds and wildlife migration routes. As the bases required significant storage due to the difficulty of resupply, they had many tanks, both above and below ground, with which time have leaked millions of gallons of fuel and dangerous chemicals. A Canadian project to remediate the environmental damage from 21 dew-line sites that were decommissioned in the 1960s, conducted between 1996 and 2014, was the largest environmental cleanup in Canadian history and cost $575 million. The scope of the project was staggering, with hundreds of thousands of cubic meters of contaminated soils and debris. Some soil was so contaminated that it had to be removed to facilities in the south. Others were buried in specifically constructed landfills. But one of the most significant effects of the manufacture of the line was on Canadian culture and the native peoples of Canada's north. While there was a concern about the effect on these remote populations from the start, Canada appointed northern resource officers to represent their interests, the impact on culture proved to be beyond management. While it offered a pipeline of government services to populations which previously had been largely ignored and offered economic, educational, and healthcare opportunities that were barely existent previously, Dewline operations also had an irreparable impact on the hunter-gatherer peoples of Canada's north. As one Canadian university professor noted, in all of recorded human history, there is no group of people who went from hunting and gathering culture to a modern one in such a short period of time. The resulting upheaval left the Inuit with deep social scars, and the concurrent risks of a new sedentary wage economy, including new health risks and challenges like alcohol-related violence. Like the Pine Tree Line and the Mid-Canada Line, the Dew Line, one of the most ambitious construction projects in world history, was largely outdated before it was even completed. The advent of nuclear missiles made these sites that detected only incoming bombers less important. In 1985, the United States and Canada came to an agreement to dismantle the Dew Line. Some stations were upgraded with better radar, other stations were simply decommissioned, and the last official Dew Line station was decommissioned in 1993. What is left is now called the North Warning System, and unlike the Dew Line, those stations that are in Canada are manned exclusively by Canadian personnel, while the United States mans those stations that are in the United States and helps to fund the entire system.
The project was extraordinary in its scope. It was a marvel of its time, and it was part of that system that purports to have prevented nuclear Armageddon via mutual deterrence. But like every great project, it had implications far beyond its intent, and it transformed the north of Canada, both physically and culturally. And it might have offered lessons that will be useful in the future as the world faces new challenges. It is history that deserves to be remembered. Now is the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. We also have a special guest today. She's been on the podcast a few times before, and it's Betty Joe, the history guy's mom, and of course my grandmother. The scale of these of these projects of like the 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 do line and even the the lines that came before it, uh, and you pointed out at the beginning of the video is is enormous. I mean, it was incredible that they were putting this stuff together. Even when you start at the pine tree line, when we were talking about covering so much space and making sure that you know we had radar contacts across that entire that entire section of space, I what what kind of made these lines you know these lines of radar technology what 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 was vital about them that that they that made them want to you know pay those costs well i mean at the time and of course you know uh, you can go back and rethink the cold war all you want about you know how much ill will either of us really had for the other each always sounded surprised at the suggestion that they would be the aggressor uh, but at the time i mean we legitimately thought that there was a chance that those those darn Ruskies were going to come drop atomic bombs on us. And so these, these determined how far out we would know that that could occur uh, in order to respond. And so the thinking, when you, when you start thinking mutually assured destruction, uh, then you start getting into each other's heads about how can you do some sort of first decapitating strike that would prevent that. Uh, and and uh, then, then you think that you could do that for self-defense. Uh, and then you're thinking in terms of, you know, how do we keep that from something that could happen? So when you put all the pieces of it together, I mean, we really thought we might be, you know, protecting the existence of civilization, the existence of our, not just our world, but the world, uh, because these, these detection mechanisms are what guaranteed mutual shared destruction, which is what kept us from nuking each other into, you know, out of existence. So I, you know, I think, you know, when you understand the reasoning at the time that we really literally thought that life on Earth depended upon this, uh, you can see how we put the effort into it. But the, the other thing to note is this is shortly after the Second World War. Uh, and, you know, we're on a war footing. We're on a, you know, a, a belief that we can afford to do almost anything. I mean, look at the fleets that we built and the airplanes that we built and the technology that developed. Uh, and that's combined at the same time that I think we are just as paranoid about us starting. You know, when, when the U.S. entered World War II, we knew we were unprepared. And I think we left World War II, II saying that we are the, the biggest power in the world and we are never going to be unprepared again. So you, you've got that same sort of we're willing to sacrifice for a war footing uh, put together with the, you know, we honestly think that the world is at stake uh, and we could go do, I mean, you know, incredible things. And it, it's hard to imagine. You can't really rethink, but I mean, it's hard to imagine if we had applied that effort, you know, otherwise, you know, what might it have meant? Uh, and you get all these arguments, you know, Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex at the time, too, as well. That was, I mean, there was just an argument that says that we've got to keep defense spending because if a war starts, we don't have time to ramp up again. And so let's just keep buying stuff. And I have a question, and I don't know when you researched it, when you were doing that. Did the Russians do the same thing? Did they set up lines and, and defense lines? Yes. I mean, there's relatively less information on it, but the Russians were doing the same thing. They were, and, and there are stories, just like with ours, of the Russian lines, you know, having false 
false positives that could have led to a, a nuclear confrontation. So I, we haven't done, I haven't done any episodes on uh, the, the Russian versions. There's a lot less known about them. But yes, we were both uh, very much concerned with early warning. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, we talk about the, the Russians have had a space force for decades. Their space force, what the Russians call space force, whose emblem actually looks a lot like our space force emblem. Their space force is the guys that watch the early warning systems. But, yeah, there's these massive hmm. radars that are built in Europe and, and uh, they, that okay. was all part of the Soviet system. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, uh, when you talk about was it serious or not, and we've talked about that this week with uh, Lance and I have, and that's the fact that, you know, we did we sat under our desk. Uh, we did it often, we uh, like they like they do uh, uh, the drills now in the schools. But uh, I try to think if I believed it or not, if I really thought that that was it, that 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 might happen to us, and um, I don't think I did. But it was certainly a part of a part of my upbringing and, and part of my school all those years. Uh, anybody you know uh, of of an age remembers the fact that that, that you know. The sirens go off and we climb under our desk, uh, and uh, I don't know how much good that desk would have done us, but it, it is an interesting question. <laughs> that can cover uh, literally I, I mean, suggest covering yourself with a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does seem difficult to imagine that that was actually going to protect you if you were really at all close enough to a nuclear blast, uh, to a nuclear blast that you were going to uh, want to take cover. Um, that what, taking yeah, cover was going to do much good. Anything, yeah, it's, uh... yeah. Uh, well. It, I, they've talked about how at least you're uh, doing something. Then that's true. Well, you know, <laughs> keeps we you from thinking about we the can't hopelessness. Can't be caught with a mine shaft gap. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is. It's really. It's really kind of incredible how much that is. As you know, that's just like kind of the regular stuff that I think that a lot of people. You know, they don't talk about it in the history books. Although we talk about a lot of the of the you know ducking under desks and stuff. It's still some of that kind of stuff that is that you that everybody experienced. And so it's it feels like ah something everybody knows, and I wonder that's the kind of stuff that I think falls by the wayside sometimes. And I mean, hundred years from now, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's not going to be as well I didn't I didn't do duck and cover. We didn't see you know duck under our desk. We we missed that piece. So and obviously you know you were well past that piece. Now you're wondering the way the world's going if we need to be giving people. Well, you know they recently made a video in New York. I guess the New York uh, uh, emergency people did a video on what to do in case of a nuclear war, which was. So, you know, go inside. So maybe we're talking about it again. Maybe we'll, we'll start making new crackers. And We certainly don't seem, I mean, at the time, it, you would think we, we had at least a lot of systems in place for if those, you know, if there was an attack. And these days, you know, there's there's not really, I, I mean, we've got various disaster situations, but it's not like everybody knows where the nearest shelter is. Or at least, I, you know, I don't know where the well, nearest yeah, shelter is. I mean, we don't, we don't have airway warned, wardens anymore. Yeah. I mean, it used to be like they divided the nation up. There were 100 blocks and you were going to have one senior warden and you're going to have 10 wardens and, they, and everybody, we just don't have that anymore. But I mean, those the facilities aren't kept up anymore. I mean, you might still see those no. signs. Uh, but if your local high school gym is set up as a civil defense shelter, uh, probably has very little in terms of supply. And I'm sure the thinking now is more in terms of natural disaster than, than nuclear war. Well, but the, yeah. all, the other thing is, and, and I don't know there were that much better communications and such, but how many of us really believe that sitting in our desk or going into an air raid shelter is really going to protect you? make a you? difference, yeah. If, if they start shooting off the nuclear bombs, I think, most of the world realizes this is this is for serious, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and you even wonder, 
Do you ha if you had a choice, do you want to be the last one? The left? last one here. <laughs> well, was it ever yeah, real, or was it just a way to make people feel some sense of security, or they could do something about yeah. it? Or, you know, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, we're 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 reaching a new era where there's new dangers, and and uh, you know, there's always been these discussions that something like low intensity conflict, like it's going on in Ukraine, that could escalate, would be much more likely than something like the Bay of Pigs. Or, or, or the yeah. Cuban Missile Crisis, where we're going to, you know, suddenly jump on each other because, you know, no one wants to die. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 all I can say, I mean, you can't, you can't guess the future. All we can say is talk about the past. In the past, when you ask that question, why did we do this? I mean, we didn't think there was anything more important, and we were on that line that we, you know, we were paranoid enough to think. Uh, that this was the only way we were going to keep our those 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 Russians from from nuking us, and that the moment that they saw yeah. weakness, they were going to take that opportunity, uh, and and so we had to be you know that much better than they were. And it is interesting. I mean, for both of these particular episodes, I mean, they were both built around a period when the largest threat was strategic bombers, uh, and uh, before yeah. uh, there was a significant threat from submarines and and before ICBMs even. Uh, and when those changed. Then it, you know it meant a lot different. I mean, now today, I mean, the thing is, before the bombers get here, we're already going to be dealing with the missiles, and so I mean, the, the, so their yeah. their their utility kind of faded. But and we still operate. We still operate early warning systems. Yeah, it's they look a little different. I mean, we have a we have a much different uh, situation tech technologically. Yes, it is. You know. And maybe this has something to do with the fact that, you know, we were on this war footing. Uh, they built this really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when you set out when you set out the the obstacles, it sure seems like this was going to take a while. But I think, like you said, is that when you when you think it's the most important thing, and uh, especially after uh, 19, you know, 1949, when the when we know the Soviets have have you know nuclear weapons and that they're advancing them just like we are um, and more quickly than we thought, too. Uh, that this, you know, not having those a year, even a year, taking a year longer to build them could could have meant, you know, the difference between uh, the United States and North America existing versus the Soviets. Because boy, you sure don't want to be the person who didn't have a system of yeah, warning who, when, who, the, who when the first nukes drop. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. if you talk to anybody, I mean, everything was built more quickly then it seems like there's just more delay process that went into goes into it today uh and you know obviously yeah. uh you know these they didn't care about environmental impact statements or anything like that because you know they were able to put you know the national security in front of it but when you look at the films uh you know which there's a lot of films in this in these videos but when you look at the films you can see just how much hardware i mean we were mothballing hundreds and hundreds of supply ships uh, and you know military yeah. vessels of all sorts i mean they were landing this stuff with higgins boats that we used you know prepared for d-day i mean how many of those that we have sitting around because we were preparing to invade japan well you know when you've got the this is the fleet we were going to use to invade japan just sort of sitting around then like yeah you know then then you can invade north canada uh and build yeah these just, sites. just fine so part of that is because of the war and because of the war footing and because of the material that was left over from the war uh and and part of that was because of the sense of urgency and part of that was just a uh, you know, there, it just feels like you know you could actually get up and do things more in the past and you know now construction projects seem to take a much longer delay. And wouldn't it be interesting, it's, it's interesting that, that we did that with the Canadians, or we went, we went in, you know, we went up there and built that across their uh, their land, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the Hanverville land, land that you really couldn't use, but the, the agreement or the, 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 the fact that the Canadians and the Americans actually did that because you're protecting the states rather yeah. than Canada, right? 
Yeah, well, it was protecting Canada too. We we that was that was the war. The war convinced the United States and Canada because there was a period where it looked like England might fall. Uh, and then that was a period when Canada, and to, to an extent Mexico too, where we all agreed that we would have to cooperate in a defense of North America. And that stuck. Uh, and that's what was going on at the time. But that grew, over the period of that, that grew more controversial with time, the fact that U.S. military were in Canadian space, uh, until the point where uh, these, you know, by the, even when you went from the Pine Tree Line to the Mid-Canada Line, the Mid-Canada Line was entirely staffed by Canadians. Uh, and that was because there was a sh kind of a shifting perspective going on. And there was a problem after the war, too, because uh, Canada very quickly uh, wanted to reduce defense spending. So a lot of the original commitments were difficult to keep up with. It was less and less popular in Canada to pay for these, these, you know, these sorts of uh, uh, projects. But, yeah, you're, in the end, you know, the farther Canada's farther north, they're going to get bombed first. So these are more likely to defend America than, than Canada. I also uh, I can see why, you know, the average Canadian might look at this and feel like uh, – if it, if not for the United States, there wouldn't have been, you know, they wouldn't have been in the path of the nuclear path of nuclear missiles. Yeah, I can kind of see how I mean, they, but, I mean, they might after think the war, that. But I mean, Canada saw itself as part of the of the empire. They certainly saw themselves as part of the Commonwealth. Fair. You know, uh, 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 England was attacked first. England was as just as worried about. I mean, in terms of the Cold War, was just as worried about the the you know the Reds as the U.S. was. So yeah, I know I think that did change over time, and I think you know the two nations have diverged a little bit even since in terms of things like defense and 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 our perspective of the world. Uh, but I mean, that, that grew more and more of a controversy. And then, of course, that became a massive controversy when the question was, how do we clean this stuff up? You know, because uh, Canada saw yeah. that being, you know, more our responsibility than we probably saw it being our responsibility. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's just as expensive to go do environmental mitigation up there as it was to build up there. Yeah. I mean, that's always, uh, that's one of the, that's, that's, I mean, it's a common, uh, controversy today over uh what whatever we're going to build whether you're you know whether you're digging a coal mine or building a uh fuel refinery or whatever you're doing that you know the costs of the environmental impact cost after the fact and uh what what you do to fill in the holes and stuff like that yeah, it's, yeah, it's always and the, and the toxic but and it also did i mean it did what military projects can do i mean they talked about when, when america was in iceland they call that a, they call that a, a miracle when uh america's cooperation with mexico during the war they called that a miracle yeah and so really it built infrastructure where there hadn't been infrastructure it developed industries in canada where there hadn't been indigenous industries to do that some of those industries are still important industries today uh and you know, we talk about at the end, I think we talk about at the end of the Dew Line episode, what it meant for indigenous peoples. But I mean, previously, I mean, these, these, these were people that were almost essentially cut off from civilization. You couldn't bring services to them. And they were still, I mean, it's really interesting to see them landing in their Globemaster. And there's a guy that's yeah. showing them his harpoon, right? I mean, and uh, uh, it, so it did also uh, spark economic development, which has, has its ups, but also its downs, uh, that impacted the Canada as well. So it really did change. It changed Canada. It changed Canada's very geography, but it changed its politics. It changed its industry. It changed its economy. Uh, and then over time, as the politics changed, then it's led to interesting controversies too so it's it's just it it's one of those things where you can't you know you can't disconnect even nature from history because the two truly do affect each other and the idea that this you know historical situation meant that we could go conquer the arctic in a way we never had before is it's really extraordinary to think about and there were, i mean there were people living up there the whole the whole time but i think you mentioned in the uh, in the episode someone saying that there'd been like no one who went from a hunter gatherer society to modern era so quickly so quickly yeah because 
Otherwise, we weren't building. Ro I mean, you weren't going to build a road to somewhere. Yeah, yeah. There far was, there in the was very little. There was very little up there in terms of government or infrastructure or anything. Uh, and so the populations up there were still living essentially in hunter-gatherer and to an extent Stone Age. Uh, and yeah. and uh, uh, and you know suddenly you're showing up and building you know high-tech radar stations up there. Uh, and uh, yeah. they're developing, you know, the skills to help support those stations, but that changes the hunter-gatherer culture. And it did lead to things like sedentary lifestyles, and people had never worried about gaining weight before were suddenly having unhealthy lifestyles and alcoholism and a lot of different things that occurred because you, you had such a massive and quick change in the culture. But on the other hand, yeah. uh, you know, at some point, civilization was going to reach the north of Canada, uh, and uh, this this allowed them to bring you know resources, medical resources, and and other governmental resources that wouldn't have been up there otherwise. So you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea that if you go, if you go up and ask the Inuit in northern Canada if they would prefer to be living like they were prior to the Dew Line, uh, or if they you know acknowledge that you know that that military spending up there actually you know did transform in ways that are it's you know a... modern modern conveniences that you know people probably don't mind yeah. having. It's a really interesting question, and I guess I mean you know from from our side it's difficult to to really make any any judgment on that. It's, I, I it, think we're, it's we're probably the answer is probably mixed, and there are probably different yeah. people yeah. with different opinions. Yeah, I, that that's kind of what makes sense to me on it too. Um, it does show, you know, as 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 quickly as that was moving, um, as quickly as it was changing culture, it was also how fast that technology was advancing. Oh yeah, because ev every single one of these lines that we built, by the time we built them, they were already older yeah and, less and, and the next than radar the had we... much more capability and yeah. the, you know, the, and the, the the i mean the extraordinary thing about the dual was just the radar was that ability to communicate uh, so quickly across with the, yeah. with the huge dishes and yeah it was microwave you know communication uh and one of the things that that did is that it dramatically changed how we did radar and commercial aviation uh and for for a long time really commercial the radar at commercial aviation was going to be the, the 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 one back generation for military uh, and so that, I mean, imagine what it means uh, in commercial aviation. If you've got, if the best radar you have are like the Mid-Canada line and they, they get confused when the birds are migrating, right? I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, it did that technology change quickly. And part of that was because of the war that it, or, you know, the idea of the Cold War that, that it changed quickly and we were, we were applying resources to it. But those resources did, I mean, you know, radar makes a huge difference in our ability to safely travel today and our ability to yeah. predict weather today and all sorts of things. And part of that came from this development too. So kind of like the space program, uh, whenever you're doing that sort of, you know, you, you throw your national commitment at doing it, which almost always seems to be for defense purposes, uh, then it does, yeah. you do get a lot of ancillary technologies that end up having, you know, value beyond that, that military purpose. And I mean, nowadays, I assume that we've got, we've got radar systems that could detect uh, anything coming over the Arctic, but I, I doubt that they're all, um, it's not running anything like what the, the dew line was doing. Uh, I, I don't well, know I mean, what we, we exactly are able to do our a much more effective like. system over much fewer stations. That's what yeah. we're able to do now. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. I th it's you know when you look at uh, maps, we we always flatten globes on mm -hmm. our maps, and so it's so easy to forget that the Arctic is the shortest distance between Canada and Russia. Because yeah. you know you want to you want to look at like oh there's there but there's nothing. It's 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 a different way of thinking to remember that you know the the Arctic sits there just like that. Was it? I I mean at the time would it have been difficult for the Russians to you know, fly bombers over the Arctic or you know, were I we think, technologically? Uh, I mean certainly there's you know there's weather in the Arctic. You know where do you take off and where you land yeah. in the Arctic. But I mean the thing is we were operating you know projects like Operation Chrome Dome where we were flying B-52s all the time. Uh, and I, we were operating strategic bombers over the Arctic uh, uh, all the time. 
Uh, and so I think that, I mean, certainly the technology, especially with uh, when we move to, uh, 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 you know, jet bombers, uh, I, I don't think yeah. that that, I mean, I think they would have been flying well above weather. So I, I don't think that that was particularly the concern. I think it, they, they, that everybody had the capability to, you know, zip over, you know, the pole yeah. if you needed to. Yeah. But it is, yeah, it it is a different, because we yeah. think of ourselves being closest to Russia, like at Alaska or the Aleutian Islands or something yeah. like that. But when you actually look at I mean, the, uh, Russia and Canada are, and Alaska are actually very, very close to each other across the pole, yeah. Yeah, and the, when you talk about population centers, too, uh, you know, fly, Kamchatka, there's there's very few people on that eastern side of Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alaska is very, Alaska, sparsely, yeah, right? very yeah. sparsely populated, yeah. And, and so the, the most sensible way, because shooting them over Europe, of course, we would have all kinds of warning uh, uh, the the most sensible way, and where that Russia is going to have most of their uh, nuclear silos, I assume, is you know going to be ways to shoot over that Arctic as opposed to crossing over uh, the Atlantic or the Pacific. And Europe had their own issues because they were just so much closer. Yeah, uh, you could put silos much closer, and they didn't have to oh, travel different kinds of different kind of anything. missiles. I mean, that was all. That's a, its own story yeah. there. I mean, the whole story of the Pershing and the. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, every every place had its, and you know, we had the same thing in Cuba. There was a different, you're using different kinds of missiles when you're shooting between Cuba and, and Florida. But uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, much of the, you know, ICBM strategy, much of the bomber strategy was going to go across because that was just the quickest way and the, the way that you would give the least warning. And, and so it could, you could literally have been flying your bomber and seeing their bomber go in the other direction, you know? Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? <laughs> so we a lot of things, but, uh, but we sat down to watch, uh, and we, we were picking through things, and we came up with one that's called Are There Other Earths? Uh, so, you know, Magellan is so cool. There's sometimes you got nature, sometimes you got history. We were looking at space. Uh, and I, I th- you know, I was really kind of surprised by it. Uh, uh, it. It's really talking about, you know, how we're identifying planets and the, and the new systems we've had. We've got a couple of telescopes that are really just designed to try to identify planets. And, you know, it was one of those ones It looked like it might have been made for planetariums or something like that. But it really did show a lot of new kind of cutting edge science and, and a lot of, you know, promising ideas of, you know, rocky planets that are in, in Goldilocks zones. And, and at the very end, the, the surprising part was they're talking about these, these nanoprobes that we're sending or that we're planning to send. They'll, they'll be powered by a laser here on Earth and they'll be able to make it to like Proxima Centauri in 20 years. Floating piece of metal that's got a little bit of scientific instrument in the middle. And we assume that some number of them are going to, you know, you can shoot out like 100 of them and some number will get knocked out by space dust. Uh, and the rest of them within 20 years might be able to get to planets where we'll be able to, you know, get some information back, including photography. It was fun. Oh, it was science. One of the things that I learned, I thought uh, they start talking about uh, as they're tracking all this and they're tracking them all from planetariums and, tele- and telescopes that are in that are in Chile. And so I started wondering then why in the world would they would we build that many in Chile? And it turns out that it says that that is that's the most silent and the clearest uh uh, cleanest place that there is in order to build those kind of telescopes. And so they, they basically wow. are sitting down there in the desert in Chile instead of where you might think, you know, where you might think that they would be here in the United States or in other places. Yes. But, uh, but also at the start, though, they were highlighting the, uh, the the radar telescope in Puerto Rico that in, what, in 2020 that uh, was destroyed because of the hurricane damage. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, yeah, it was, you know, uh, you got to love Magellan TV and the breadth of things that you can watch. The other day, Mom and, and our, my daughter Willow were watching about hummingbirds. Oh, we and... learned so much about hummingbirds, and they even have <laughs> they even have a fake hummingbird that flies among them and, and, che- and checks things out. And so uh, uh, 
Uh, no, I was absolutely fascinated. And so basically the, there's there's thousands of different kinds of hummingbirds, and it depends on where they live and what kind of flowers there are. So that's one day you're, huh. you're learning hummingbirds, the next day you're looking for exoplanets. What have you been watching on Magellan TV? So I watched one called The Funny Side of Science, and uh, I don't know if everyone's heard of these, but there are these things called the Ig Nobels or the Ig Nobles. And they're essentially the idea is that they are supposed to be finding ridiculous science that one of the Ig Nobel kind of guys, one of the, the head honchos said at the beginning, he said, it is looking for science that makes you laugh and then makes you think. And it was some really, really interesting stuff. It is the kind of stuff that gets reported on because it's ridiculous, uh, such as apparently if you break pasta, uh, it doesn't break into two pieces. It will always break into more than two pieces. And so there were some guys who were specifically trying to figure out why that is. And so this is this is science that is all uh, all seems a little silly. But what the documentary does is talk about each of these people and about kind of how that science actually has some real world impacts. And because it sounds ridiculous, but then they're like, see, there's actually a good reason for us to do this science, even if it's science that's never going to be uh, on the front page for uh, winning a Nobel Prize. Well, at least it can win uh, something something interesting if perhaps not as prestigious so it's it's a really really interesting documentary it's entertaining uh, it's called the funny side of science and you can go from hummingbirds to space to uh, breaking pasta and you're always learning something i think that's the that's the great part about magellan tv and of course if you are a listener or watcher of the history guy you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash history guy where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy talks about the Texas Towers and the tragedy that struck Texas Tower 4. The technology derived from the economic competition of the Cold War is really quite amazing. From occupied stations a hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle to placing a human on the moon, the era really did drive the boundaries of technology and humanity. But not every experiment was a success, and sometimes those victims of the war that was not a war are too easily forgotten. The 28 men who died in the collapse of Texas Tower 4 on January 15, 1961, deserved to be remembered. After 1953, the air defense strategy of the United States was driven by a military policy of the Eisenhower administration called the New Look. This attempt to balance Cold War military commitments with the nation's financial resources changed the focus of air defense from attempting to protect the nation from attack to providing enough warning to preserve our nuclear attack capability, counting on the doctrine of massive retaliation to deter any attack. This was grounded in the reality of the nuclear age. The former strategy of planning to intercept bombers became essentially futile, as even if we could effectively destroy 99% of an incoming attack, the power of hydrogen bombs meant that an attack would still be devastating. The goal then was to provide our strategic air command with enough warning to allow us to preserve our strategic bombers for a retaliatory strike. There was, therefore, a focus on creating a comprehensive early warning strategy, with significant focus on filling gaps in radar coverage that might be exploited in an incoming attack on the United States. Over the course of the 1950s, the U.S. and Canada jointly worked on a series of land-based installations that would eventually create a multi-layered system of the Pine Tree Line, the Mid-Canada Line, and the Distant Early Warning Line. The development of these systems required massive effort, and each is an engineering marvel in itself. But the lines still included numerous gaps that were expected to be filled via a number of different systems. 
One of the most extraordinary of those ideas was proposed in a report by MIT's Lincoln Laboratory in 1952. The report considered the possibility of extending radar coverage by building platforms in the Atlantic using offshore drilling technology. They concluded that a set of such platforms equipped with radars could extend coverage several hundred miles offshore, giving half an hour additional warning of a bombing attack. In January of 1954, funding for five towers was approved, with the goal of providing an interlocking early warning perimeter stretching from Nova Scotia to New Jersey. Because the platforms would resemble the offshore oil platforms that could be seen in the Gulf of Mexico, they were called Texas Towers. This was quite an engineering challenge. These towers would be substantially larger and placed in substantially deeper water than any oil platform that was operating in that day, and they would be placed in the storm-swept North Atlantic. Originally, five towers were planned, but only three were completed, towers two, three, and four. The towers had to be sizable to fit the radar equipment. The platform was a triangle approximately 200 feet per side and included more than 6,000 tons of steel. And they would be anchored deep. Tower 4 was set in approximately 185 feet of water. Deep sea oil platforms go much deeper than that today. But in 1954, most oil platforms operated in 20 to 40 feet of water. They worked a difficult balance, trying to present minimum resistance to waves, yet able to withstand hurricane-force storms. Because of their size and the rough seas where they were to be located, they could not be constructed on site. Instead, they were jack-up rigs. Their watertight floating hulls were built in shipyards and towed to their location, where the legs were lowered and the platform raised to its regular height of 83 feet above mean load tide using hydraulic jacks. This created the historical novelty of being the first Air Force stations to be christened and launched from a shipyard. Towers 2 and 3 were built at the Four River Shipyard in Quincy, Massachusetts. They raised a slight difficulty as the platform had to fit through the gap on the raised Four River Bridge, where clearance was less than two and a half feet on either side of the platform. Once constructed, each tower included a large search radar and two large height finder radars, each enclosed in a neoprene radome to protect them from the weather, and three antennae for communications. The first completed was Texas Tower 2, about 100 miles east of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, in December of 1955. Tower 3, 50 miles southeast of Nantucket, Massachusetts, became operational in November of 1956. The final tower, Tower 4, placed 65 miles southwest of Long Island, New York, became operational in 1958. Of course, the Russians were highly interested in the towers. It was not uncommon to see periscopes from Russian submarines. Russian trawlers, purportedly merchant vessels but probably spy vessels, spent so much time circling the towers that one of the airmen said that at night there were so many lights you thought you were at Coney Island. Rumors spread that the Russians were sneaking onto the platforms at night. The towers were essentially self-contained floating bases. Texas towers contained bunk rooms, recreational facilities, a library, and a dining hall. But life for the 60 to 100 crews stationed aboard the platforms was not easy. It would have been easy enough in isolated and cramped quarters to get what they call tower fever. The work could be difficult. Supply could only be transferred when the currents cooperated, meaning that airmen would be manhandling heavy deck cargo in the middle of the night, something sailors would usually avoid. But the stations were also seemingly always rocked with noise, not just from station operations, but from the sound transferred up the legs that were anchored to the ocean bottom. They mounted the world's loudest foghorns, which on a foggy day would blow every 29 seconds. In the North Atlantic, fog was common. The Tower 2 foghorn once had to be used for three weeks straight. Crews rotated in every four weeks found that when they got home, they couldn't sleep without noise. As a sign of the quality of life of the towers, Air Force personnel referred to them 
as the Iron Bastards. But perhaps the worst of all was the constant motion that was caused by the waves. Tower 2 was said to have a sort of jogging motion. Tower 3 was a twister. Tower 4 in the deepest water was the worst of all, bobbing and weaving so much that the crews referred to Tower 4 as Old Shaky. And that was a warning sign for troubled Tower 4. In June of 1947, as Tower 4 was being towed, two structural supports were torn off and lost in rough seas. After the tower was placed, the Air Force decided to install the radar before the supports were fixed. That affected the stability of the station. Tower 4 was in by far the deepest water, over 180 feet, more than three times the 56 feet of the water in which Tower 2 was anchored. There was no precedent at the time for anchoring a platform so deep. Then, in September of 1960, Tower 4 was battered by the 50-foot waves and 132-mile winds of Hurricane Donna. A hurricane so powerful that it killed 364 people and caused $900 million in damage. The tower sustained enough damage that it was reduced to a skeleton crew of 14 Air Force personnel and 14 contractors until repairs could be made. They tried to stabilize the tower by filling the legs with sand and concrete. The tower couldn't be abandoned for fear the Russians might capture its sensitive radar equipment. In January of 1961, a strong winter storm with wind speeds up to 80 miles per hour and waves up to 40 feet tall battered the already damaged Texas Tower 4. On January 14, 1961, U.S. Coast Guard Lieutenant Paul Yost recalled, I remember going to sleep that night with the wind just howling and telling my wife, I hope we don't get a call tonight. But he and the crew of the 125-foot active class U.S. Coast Guard patrol boat Agassiz did get a call an emergency call to try to rescue the 24 men aboard Texas Tower 4. The Coast Guardsmen raced through the gale on the, on the 15th, their motto, Semper Paratus, always ready. The winds were too high to attempt a rescue by helicopter. At 6 p.m., the Agassiz was still more than two hours out when the tower radioed, we are breaking up. They were still an hour away at approximately 7.30 p.m. when Tower 4 disappeared from radar. The platform had disintegrated and collapsed into the sea. All 28 of the personnel on the tower died. Only two of the bodies were recovered. It was eventually revealed that the Air Force had already decided to decommission the program before the collapse of Tower 4. The advent of nuclear missiles, which moved much faster than bombers, meant that the towers went from adding about an extra half hour of early warning to just 60 seconds. That revelation made the deaths aboard Texas Tower 4 seem all the more futile. The Air Force did add emergency escape launches to Towers 2 and 3 so the crews could get off quickly, but by 1963, those two towers were also decommissioned. Tower 3 was salvaged, but Tower 2 was unsalvageable and was demolished on site. After a review board determined that the collapse of Texas Tower 4 was due to human error, a colonel who was the acting commander of the Boston Air Defense Sector was charged with involuntary manslaughter, and two other officers were charged with dereliction of duty. The colonel was acquitted in a court-martial, and the charges against the other officers were dropped. In 2003, a study of the collapse of Texas Tower 4 did fault organizational failings, but essentially determined that we lacked the technology at the time to predict the dynamic effects of the tower's design. The study concluded that using modern technology, we could have saved Texas Tower 4. The families of the victims of the collapse of Texas Tower 4 formed the Texas Tower Association and for many years sought official recognition of their family's sacrifice from government. That recognition finally came in February of 2011 when President Obama sent a letter to the association. Donald Abbott, who was the son of Dave Abbott, a welder who died in the collapse, was quoted in the New York Times after receiving the president's letter. 
There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my father. We were pals. One of the main connections between this episode and the last one, they're kind of they kind of take place in the same period, um, I, almost exactly the same period, over the, kind of in the the fifties, essentially. Uh, they were both trying to figure out ways that we could protect the the United States and North America from nuclear attack. I you mentioned at the beginning of this one the kind of the the, the move into the new look. Uh, which was which was under Eisenhower this kind of policy. What what kinds of things were changing from like the beginning of us building the the pine tree line in like the early early 1950s to when we were kind of in the mid 1950s is when we were really fully moved to this new look. Well, you know, policy. Eisenhower became really concerned about the cost of defense, uh, and it was going up and up and up and up. So the the new look, the whole idea of the new look was before we were thinking we were going to build uh, we we were thinking like World War II version. So we're going to build enough fighters and enough early warning that if the Russians came with bombers, we were going to be able to go, you know, outfight them in the air and knock them out of the sky. And that we did a lot of things that, you know, there were a lot of other things going on here. We were building missiles and things like that, too. Uh, and and there, there came a point where, first of all, that seemed just futile uh, because with hydrogen bombs, when we move from nuclear to thermonuclear, the idea is you only got to get one come through and you and you're already you know killing millions and millions of people. Uh, and so this idea that we're going to be able to defend our airspace the way that they fought the Battle of Britain just didn't seem realistic anymore. And the second idea is that it was just it was just an expense idea that says uh, so. So the, the the new look shifted to this idea that said our real goal is just to have enough warning that we can preserve our retaliatory capability. Uh, and as long as the Russians didn't believe that they could take us out in one shot, then it would be mutually assured destruction. And, of course, that ran into its own challenges, too, when we start talking about missile defense under Reagan in the 80s. I mean, it, you know, it all, all modifies over time. So th that was the idea of the New Look. But the New Look was really about uh, the, the services were competing for resources, uh, uh, less so than Canada, but the United States was looking to reduce its defense spending. You know, the guy that used to be the Supreme Allied Commander was at criticizing the, the military-industrial complex. Uh, and so this was, I think, a way to sort of sit around and say, how do we prioritize funds in a way that's much less expensive? And uh, the thinking even at the time really was that we could, we could radically decrease, you know, any thought towards, like, ground force. Because they thought, you know, the next war was going to be fought, you know, with bombs and missiles in the air. And if you could prevent the bombs and missiles, you know, why do you even need tanks and troops? Uh, and then, of course, you know, we start getting into the low-intensity conflicts of the Cold War and, and uh, you know, Vietnam and, and, well, Korea and then Vietnam. And, and so, I mean, it was, it was all this sort of rethinking saying, uh, uh, how do we keep up the same idea that we are going to be the superpower, that we're going to maintain, you know, an advance and, and mutually assured destruction, but not have such a, you know, crippling expense? Uh, and that was all changing. I mean, th that changed quickly. Thinking changed quickly. Technology changed quickly. As technology changed, that changed thinking. Uh, and uh, so it's really an interesting and dynamic time. And, it, and the, the funny thing or an interesting thing about uh, both of these episodes, about the Dew Line and the Texas Towers, is that they really played a very small, short, stopgap version of the war, uh, of the Cold War. Uh, and then they were quickly made irrelevant and kind of left behind in the dust. And yet at the time... You know, not just cutting edge technology, but I mean, just extraordinary application of engineering and skills to do it. 
And interesting enough, in both of these episodes, one of the things that we talked about earlier was was what the things that came out of us building uh, the the new line up there. And if you think about the the technology that went further than when we when we did the Texas Towers, because an awful lot of that had to have been used when we went in and started harvesting oil. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's probably used today uh, as we go in and we're putting in the windmills. And so when they're doing the stress and they're trying to figure out how to keep those things together, uh, I. Th- uh, basically, we were headed into a whole new generation there of technology that we didn't have before uh, and, and doing it uh, not necessarily for that reason, but we use all of that technology today. Yeah, I mean, we, fluid dynamics and the things that we learned from those, and now, of course, we use that to you know, recover, to recover oil from the bottom of the ocean, you know, up in the North Sea. Yeah. Well, because at the time, these were uh, deeper, as you mentioned in the episode, they were deeper than most of the, than anything that they, we actually had getting oil out of like the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, that line, Texas Towers, because they look like the towers that dot all over the Gulf of Mexico, much deeper ocean and also much rougher ocean and much harsher conditions. Uh, And so it's kind of funny that we use that term Texas Towers because these were really very much on steroids compared to what was going on with the, with the actual Texas Towers. And uh, yeah, that that developed over time. So I'm, I'm there's there's no question that we were learning things that would be useful in the future. Uh, but uh, you know what we learned from Texas Tower Four is that we were also putting people at risk when we did that. Yeah, yeah. and it was. Uh, I mean, they were they were incredible these towers and what we were able to put onto them. Yeah. But it clearly also sounds like I mean we were we were right at the edge of what kind of technology we could do at the time. Yeah, we were pressing everything we could to do it. But, I mean, it's extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, we floated that thing up there like a boat. We launched an Air Force base. We launched an Air Force base from, you know, a a, a dock. I mean, imagine that. And Uh, and they floated it it to a bridge where they had two and a half feet of of clearance on either side. (laughs) How do you do that? And you you drove (laughs) that out 65 miles from New York City, and you stuck it to the bottom of the ocean. And I mean, that is just absolutely, it's amazing to think about today. But I mean, to think about that at, at you know, at the time, every bit of that was, it was a new and pressing technology. Yeah. Yeah. And not, well, not perfect, obviously, especially with, with Tower 4. Um, I, I did wonder, I, I don't think you mentioned it any specifically. Do we, do we know why they didn't deploy uh, Towers 1 and 5? Uh, yeah. I mean, was I mean, just they a, they was originally planned 5. The two that they did not build were the two that were farthest north. Uh, and so they, they, okay. that was the smallest gap between that and the pine tree line. Uh, and those would have been the most expensive to deploy. And I, it was just it was just a money thing. But I think they also at the time were, you know, you, you plan the whole project and they're already realizing that ICBMs are on the horizon and that these might not be you know, all that useful with time. So, I mean, the, it just got scaled back. I mean, the same reason that we were going to have yeah. 30 zoom waltz and now we're going to have three, you know. That is I mean, it's always it's also just much easier at the beginning to be like, ah, yes. This is the this is the big plan, and then to you know find out once you actually face the well, and things get delayed and money gets spent, uh, suddenly it feels like oh well, just a few is gonna is gonna do just fine. Um, I the other thing I was thinking was I cannot imagine living on these things. Oh, I, no. It kind of sounds <laughs> we have I, sounds I, you like know, combining you think of the Cold War as being a Cold War, and then you and then you know, yeah. you, know, you realize what troops faced in Vietnam or Korea. But I mean, we those Cold Warriors. I mean, we we mentioned that a lot of time here. They were victims of the Cold War, uh, and yeah. well, I mean, imagine living up on the Dew Line. I mean, imagine you're one of those stations with three dudes. <laughs> yeah, out in the middle of yeah, you're I mean, only you're barely in contact. You know, five six months in between resupply and just you and those two other guys. You better get along. 
uh, and you know, if that was your brother, you, you'd be lucky if they, if you came back and there'd only be one, you know, and the other two would be, you know, in the refrigerator. So, uh, <laughs> we, we but I mean, these, these the... things that, you know, the shaking and the wobbling and the, the tower four was called the shaky one, whereas the other one was the dancing one. And, and, yeah, and, uh, uh, the fog horns, I mean, the, the fog oh my gosh, all the time, the world's largest, the loudest world's fog loudest. horn is blowing at twice a minute. <laughs> Or, you know, day I, at a time. or, or uh, you know, unloading supplies on those things, you know, in the middle of the night. Yeah. And you know, I think a lot of that, I mean, now we have essentially huge hotels for oil workers up in the North Sea and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, I think, uh, uh, and I think that in some ways they take those same sorts of risks on a lot of the oil platforms and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you were sacrificing for your country and realized at any given time on the Texas Towers, half of those people weren't in them, weren't Air Force. They were, they were contractors. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, it's I can't I can't imagine. I mean, I, I appreciate the service of people who sat in missile silos, of people who sat on yeah. the dew line, of people who sat in the Texas Towers. Uh, you know, we think of maybe that they were just sitting around twiddling their thumbs and, you know, looking at Playboy or something. And, and actually, these, these people were putting their lives and their health on the line for the nation uh, in very dangerous circumstances. I have to imagine. I mean, it, you talked about how, like, they would come home and not be able to sleep without noise. But I wonder, some of the... Some of that psychological stuff, uh, I mean, there's got to be some stuff that uh, plenty of them had to carry that with them through. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, for instance, it, probably I, I wouldn't be surprised if they could never get back on a boat. Uh, <laughs> it I mean, starts, it, it starts to, shaking. It's just like, no. Nope. And it had to impact their lives. And, you know, and the people yeah. on Operation Chrome Down or stuff, people that were flying planes oh, yeah. 20 hours a day, you know, all the time. And I mean, we, these these cold warriors were, were truly warriors. They were truly taking things. There were other people were at the base up in Thule in Greenland, right? Uh, and so, yeah. you know, everybody was taking their challenges. Those would be unique and you're right i'm not sure how if you served your time on those towers i'm not sure that you ever slept the same again lance and i had the opportunity to go down in the in one of the into uh to see where the titan yeah. was was stored and we and it happened that we were there with a man who had served uh, there uh and and you and you turned and asked him uh did you really believe that this is what you were doing uh and and he said absolutely he said every every minute you thought it might happen I might have to shoot this. This is what it, what it does, and so what that would you know even him after all those years thinking about it uh, would certainly uh, certainly make you realize what they sacrificed. Yeah, it's the Titan Missile Museum. It's south of uh, Tucson, and it's absolutely worth your visit. Uh, but I mean, it's, I mean, we had there were people that were sitting in silos, and you know, every all day, every day, you might be having to you know put it into the world, you know, turn a key. Oh, and you were waiting waiting for that to happen yeah. that was your job was to was to be ready and you know some of those the stress uh, of that had to be stories though, though honestly yeah, right? that was probably better than the fog horns going on every 30 seconds. <laughs> yes. well, at least you're not you're not like shaking and then yeah. as far as we know none <laughs> the of those missile horns. silos actually sank well in, you know texas tower yeah. four yeah. yeah at least you weren't you know in the water <laughs> Although at least one of those, they uh, we talked about it on an earlier podcast. Somebody dropped a wrench, and uh, that yeah, caused some right. significant issues. Yeah, yeah, that pretty much. <laughs> so yeah, if those any of their personal effects that were in there were ruined, that's certainly true. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a, there's some real challenges to, but it's also, I mean, you know, you're just in a tight space and high security and all, all this. It's just a lot of stuff that that I think we we don't always think about because you're right. I mean, it's it's you think about the the sacrifices folks are making in in combat. And uh, these these people were making sacrifices too, and, it, and they weren't the same kinds of sacrifices. And but it was something that's that's absolutely worth remembering. As you tell this story, and when you talk about the Texas Tower Four, had like several like things that came off of it yeah. uh, that were supposed to some supports yeah, that were supposed to help it. When and they, they went, added and the... so it was missing some cross bracing, and 
and that, that was kind of the conclusion at the end is that you know uh, uh, today we could have built a tower that could succeed there, but at the time yeah. we just didn't know enough about fluid dynamics and everything that was going on. But it had been damaged in a hurricane, uh, and that yeah. hadn't been repaired and or hadn't been fully repaired. And I mean, it, you know, it added up. It it does. I mean, it's hard not to wonder if. Yeah, we you know we shouldn't have pulled him off of the tower before before we did. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, it's easy to second guess that kind of stuff, you know, after the fact. That uh, I would love. But, I mean, the any, story any to given be day that... they were being circled by Russians, and you know, so they felt like yeah. if we pulled them off of there, the Russians would immediately take it over as salvage and and be able to get to all sorts of equipment. And so, I mean, yeah. they they always had these rumors. If you if you read about there, there's always rumors about wet fit footprints and stuff like that. They thought the Russians were sneaking on at wow. night and walking around. And uh, so, I mean, it could and it would honestly, be, it maybe. would be an interesting setting for like a horror movie or something like that, or you know, a science fiction yeah. movie. What if the what if the Gilman from the Black Lagoon showed up on your Texas Tower? Uh, uh, so, <laughs> those, so yes, those cer- wet footprints in were. In retrospect, that they knew it was in trouble. They had largely they had largely abandoned the platform. They kept a skeleton crew there. They knew that their life was yeah. in danger. Uh, and uh, they you know they sent a Coast Guard ship, and they sent it you know too late. It got there an hour too late. Uh, and those those twenty four men died, or whatever twenty eight men was it? Twenty eight men died, uh, and uh, yeah. you know I think the the ending of that episode where the you know the boy's just thinking about his dad, who was just a welder and who who sunk with the Texas Tower, uh, I you know I yeah. think it's very poignant. And so so yes, certainly absolutely in retrospect, we should have abandoned those towers earlier. We should have decommissioned them earlier, uh, and we should have uh, evacuated Texas Tower before it sank. You know, uh, if we if oh. that if that Coast Guard cutter had been there an hour earlier had, had had left just one hour more then they could have evacuated that and it, you know it would have sunk with nobody on it so the others they added uh, i mean they when you see them you see in this way it's it's got like a lifeboat hanging over the side just like a rowboat uh the others they they built on the things like you see on ships these days where they had the like the launch that would come off of it but uh, can you okay. imagine the conditions that sank the tower that you're going to get off in a boat <laughs> Yeah, that's that was one of the one of the difficulties is that it's the tower still it wasn't just like ah oh, the tower fell under it was just great weather it was bad weather that was part of why the coast guard yeah, couldn't yeah. get there in it was, time. Yeah, it was a terrible and, storm. Yeah, so and you yeah. know the coast guard uh, they they go out on anything to try to rescue people, but I mean there was just no no time to do it here. So it, it is it seems like it must have been an avoidable tragedy, and it certainly you know is one of those things where we took a risk because we thought it could save the nation, and we knew that people were at risk uh, and. Uh, you know, there were, you know, things wrong. We shouldn't have had people on there when we didn't have the right supports on it and things like that. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's really extraordinary to look at the engineering of how they put them up. And I actually had to kind of pull that back in the episode because I couldn't talk about all of it, how they, you know, how they kind of cranked them up. And, and it was really kind of, it's amazing how you, how you built the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, but in the end, yeah, they, did they do anything? Did they accomplish anything? Maybe not at all. And for that, we lost those, those 28 people. We spent an awful lot of money and, and, you know, they're, all of them are gone now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo. 